Would you stand with us as we begin our service with opening prayer? Ed, it's nice to have you back with us. Would you lead us in prayer, please? Oh, 
Yeah. <laughs> 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15, and be verses 9 through 17, page 1677 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. John chapter 15, starting at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know what, does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. Ask and pray for the Lord.
And our scripture text this morning is from John 15, verses 9 and following. Last week we began to look at the qualifications for remaining in Christ's love. We learned that we are to obey Christ's commands. Obedience to the words and teachings of Jesus is how we prove that we love him. Very pointed are the words of John 14, verse 24. He who does not love me will not obey my teachings. That's pretty clear what Jesus is saying with regard how we prove our love to him. It means a willing and eager obedience too, I might add. Not forced, not coerced. Any obedience to the commands of Christ which have to be wrung out of a person can hardly be coming from a heart that loves the Lord. Obedience must be consistent and persistent, not fits of allegiance, which we hear today and they're gone tomorrow. And by the way, there can be no picking and choosing of what we will obey and what we won't. All of the commands of Christ become the standard by which we live our lives as Christians. And we would have it so, for Jesus taught that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Matthew 12, verse 29. We draw out two lessons. Number one, the unbelieving take no joy or peace in the commands of Christ because they live for the things of the world. And Christ calls us to a life of holiness. And secondly, when believers lose their joy in obeying the commands of Christ, one or two things are going on. Either we're actively involved in sin in our lives, which is ruining the joy, or we are trying to obey the rules and regulations of men, and that becomes burdensome. Again, destroying our joy in service. Well, today we come to the second qualification for remaining in Christ's love. We're looking at the incentives for remaining in Christ, which the Lord himself gives in John 15. Most recently, we have turned our attention to the incentive that if we remain in Christ as a fruitful branch, we will remain in his love. Which brings us now to the second qualification and let's pray as we study our lord we thank you for the truth of your word and we pray your blessing upon our study we want to obey you we want to be known as true disciples following after our lord our master that's what disciples do and they learn of you and they walk in your ways because your ways are true So we pray that you will help us this morning. Bless those that couldn't be with us today. 
because of illness. We ask that you will give them a special grace and a blessing that you will bring healing to their body soon and restore them to our fellowship. This we ask for your glory and our good. Amen. We're looking at the qualifications for remaining in Christ's love. We've already studied one. We're to be obedient to his commands. Commands, plural. Secondly, now, we're to love the brethren. Up to this point, we have not looked at any particular command from Christ, which we are enjoined by him to obey. We have merely been told that to love Christ will mean obedience to his commands, plural, verse 10, without specifying any particular command. We learn that by this obedience, Christ's joy is in us, and our joy is made complete, verse 11. We learn that you will never be so at peace and contentment with your life as when you walk in the paths of obedience to Christ. He has pledged himself to bless the disciples who walk in his ways. But now, moving on in his instruction. Jesus leaves off with the generic version, Obey my commands, without saying what they are, verse 10, to a particular commands. And he says in verse 12, My command, singular now, starting to parse them out for us. My command is is this, Love each other as I have loved you. He goes on, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command. Again, verse 17, This is my command, love each other. Now this is not the first time the disciples have heard this. If you go back a chapter or so, John 13 Verse 34 and 35 reads, A new command I give you, love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. The Apostle John, who was listening to this instruction, some 60 years later, wrote chapters on the subject of loving the brethren in his Letters known as 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. For example, 1 John 2, verse 10, Whoever loves his brother lives in the light. There's nothing in him that causes him to stumble. 1 John 3, verse 14, the next chapter, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. And anyone who does not love remains in death. Next chapter, 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
verse 20 and 21. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And essentially, this is the pattern of our text this morning. Loving Christ evidences itself in keeping this command to love the brethren. Jesus summarized the first and foremost command of God to love God with all one's heart, soul, mind, strength, Mark 12, verse 30. And he summarized the second tablet of the law as loving one's neighbor as yourself, verse 31. So if you love God, you will not have any other gods before him. You won't make an idol out of God. You won't profane his name. You won't desecrate his Sabbath. And if you love your fellow men, you won't dishonor your parents. You won't murder someone. You won't commit adultery. You won't steal. You won't lie. You won't do anything against your neighbor, nor covet what he or she has. So the principle is love God first and then love your neighbor. But notice, notice now, that the proof in practice is the reverse. We prove our love for God by loving one another. This is why Jesus lays down this condition of remaining in his love. He says, verse 12, love each other. And this is why John points out, anyone who does not love his brother whom he has sinned, has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. Or again in 1 John 3, verse 17, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? So it's important before we move on that you grasp this principle. The reoccurring theme of these scriptures is that love for God is evident only as we love one another. By obeying the commands of the second tablet of the law towards our neighbor, we demonstrate that we love God and are obeying the commands of the first tablet of the law. Now the assumption in all of this is that loving the brethren is something we already know how to do. We think, I can do this. It's not that hard. And we think this because we begin with our own definitions of what love is, and those definitions, more than not, have their roots in the world's concepts of love, which are distorted, to say the least, and outright antithetical to God's word at worst. This is not how we are to read and study the Bible's doctrine on love. We do not come to the word love 
and read into it the meanings preached or practiced by our culture. And it's true, the world has a lot to say about love. Poetry is written on love. Love songs by the thousands are composed. Movies on love stories, romance novels, sociologists analyze love. People talk about love and loving all the time. I mean, one would think, with all of this verbiage on the subject, that the average citizen on the street has got a pretty good grasp of the idea of what it means when God tells his people to love one another. I read a book by Donald Carson entitled The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. The theme of his book is that of God's love for men, but the things which he says make this a difficult doctrine to teach also apply to what might be said about the love of men. For God, or in our study, love of Christians for each other. Difficult. Let me read what Carson writes. He says, When informed Christians talk about the love of God, they mean something very different from what is meant in the surrounding culture. To put this another way, we live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. And he lists some of them. The sovereignty of God, God's holiness, God's wrath, His providence, His personhood, all of which shape or should shape any understanding of his love. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democraticized, and above all, sentimentalized. All you got to do is watch a TV guy, preacher, and you'll see how they handle the doctrine of love. But it's not always been so. In generations when almost everyone believed in the justice of God, people found it difficult to believe in the love of God. The preaching of the love of God came as good news. Nowadays, if you tell people that God loves them, they are unlikely to be surprised by that. They think, of course God loves me. He's like that, isn't he? Besides, why shouldn't he love me? I'm kind of cute, or at least as nice as the next person, I'm okay, you're okay. And God loves you and he loves me too. Now the point Carson makes about the doctrine of the love of God can be made as well for the doctrine 
of the love people are to have for one another. We often define love in terms of sheer sentimentality. Warm and fuzzy feelings which are expected to have that we are expected to have towards all mankind, but especially especially towards the people of God. We think we are to love unquestionably, with no standard involved. We think love just happens because of God's Spirit. Therefore, love requires no work. We believe in falling in love, falling out of love, especially when talking of people of the opposite sex. And we believe that love tolerates anything found in another, including his or her sin. We believe that love must never do anything to show disfavor with another person. These are all attributes of love that we have gleaned from the culture and not from the Word of God. So it's very difficult to learn the true meaning of what we are told to do in regard to loving one another because we bring all this excess baggage into the discussion from the world and from a less than biblical worldview. End of Carson's quote. What I want us to do this morning as we study this business of loving the brethren is to see how God defines this love in his holy book. If we see some things here that confront our preconceived notions about love, obedience to Christ demands that we are to scrap our worldly understanding and put on the mind of Christ in this matter. So I'm calling us back to the book. Forget the world and its culture and what they say about love and we go to the book and see what God says about love. The first trait we observe about love for the brethren is that it is commanded love. This jumps out at us from our text, verse 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Again, verse 17. This is my command, love each other. The apostles of Christ taught the same thing. John the Apostle wrote, I'm writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Anyone claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 7. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. 
For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and following. And Peter repeatedly shapes the obligation to love one another in the form of a command. 1 Peter 1, 22-23 Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Or again in 1 Peter 4, verse 8 Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sin. So, there is agreement between the apostles and Christ that the nature of love we are to express towards one another as brothers and sisters in the family of God is that of a commanded love. The agreement does not disturb us. The essence of the agreement does disturb us. Say, what do you mean? Well, Our dilemma is this. How can a person be commanded to love another? Now you see we haven't even moved off square one in this discussion and already we are confronted with something about love which is rather foreign to our thinking. We think, ah, no one can be commanded to love another. Either you love someone or you don't. You either have this love for others or you do not. But it cannot be manufactured. So how did we arrive at this conclusion? I would suggest that our definition of love has the notion that it is somewhat irrational. That is, it is not the result of thinking, but of feeling. Love is therefore uncontrollable. We speak of falling in love or falling out of love. In short, it just happens, and often you cannot see it coming. It just hits you like a blindsided attack. Certainly cannot plan it. It just happens without you looking for it. This is what I call the magical view of love. It's completely out of the person's control. We are just victims of circumstances or victims of the fates or what have you. Well, if any of this is your definition of love, it's no wonder why you cannot accept from the lips of God the command to love. The command to love means you can will to love. It means you have some say over it. 
You can control it. You can choose to obey the command or you can choose to disobey. But either way, love becomes your decision and not the result of the fickle finger of fate. Our first mission, then, ought to be to root out and destroy all the myths on love which we have in our thinking. Paul told the church of Corinth, We demolish arguments and every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. When you balk at the idea that love can be willed in obedience to the command of Christ, this is an argument, this is a pretension set up against the knowledge of God because God says the direct opposite. You've squared off against God and you will be worse off for having done so. And it's amazing how many Christians have adopted the thinking of the world on the matters of life and yet Paul gives us this charge that we are to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Uh, Because God knows where our thinking is distorted and where it's drawn away from the thinking of Christ. And that's in the culture. So, maybe your thinking is characterized by the definitions of the world. Maybe you have absorbed the philosophy of the age unwittingly, but when the word confronts you as a believer, you're honor-bound to ditch your adopted thoughts and to begin to think Christ's thoughts on whatever the subject. And you don't have to guess because Christ gives us his thoughts in the Holy Word. So, That said, let's take a closer look as to just how Christ can command us to love one another. Well, number one, he can do so firstly because from God's viewpoint, love is giving, not getting. Let me say that again. From God's viewpoint, love is giving, Not getting. It's the result of a decision of the will, not the emotion of feeling. The Bible describes love in terms of objective acts of doing good and kind things to or for others, rather than in terms of subjective acts notion. What's in it for me? What am I going to get? That doesn't sound like Christianity at all, does it? But it does sound like the world. That ought to be a warning to us. This will mean that our feelings of love, the subjective part of us, must bow to the objective obedience. The world defines love in terms of of the subjective alone. That's it. 
Love is a feeling. You either love someone or you don't. That's it. You either feel love towards them or you don't. Hence the conclusion, love cannot possibly be willed or commanded because no one can command the feelings. Well, while God's word certainly allows for love feelings, it does not begin here as the starting point, nor even as the primary point. Rather, it takes love out of the mere emotional realm and places it on the solid bedrock of obedience to the will of God. If love is giving, not getting, you can give even at times when you don't feel like. About that. The Bible portrays God's love for sinners as giving. The most famous verse in the entire Bible reads this way For God so loved the world that he gave his uniquely begotten Son. What did he give him to? To the cross, to torture, to death. Now certainly, God didn't feel like doing that. But it was the only way to reconcile sinners to him. It was the only way of paying sin's debt so that we could go free. Again, 1 John 4 Verse 10, this is love, writes John, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul wrote, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2 verse 20. Love is giving, brethren, and we have this in our text too, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. For his friends. This giving aspect of love is expressed in the same terms by John in 1 John 3.16. 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is, writes John. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He then goes on to say, if anyone has material possessions and he sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Very practical, isn't it? 
You have the means, you have the ability to aid a brother in need, but you don't do it. How can the love of God be in you? You see here how John's description of love for the brothers coincides with these other scriptures that we have read about God's love for us. So it's doable for sinners too, and not just for God. We can choose to love people by choosing to give to them what they need. It may be material items, food, clothing. It may be consolation in times of sorrow, and you're the mouthpiece from God. It may be encouragement when a person is discouraged. A helpful hand when they are tired and weary and they're in a project that is overbearing. Listen to Jesus' words. Love your enemies. Ooh. Did I read that right? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. How so? He causes his son, S-U-N, to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors were the cheats of the world. And he is saying, they can love those who love them, but it will take a godly person to love enemies and pray for them. Paul's thoughts are identical to Jesus when he writes, if your enemy is hungry, (laughs) feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 20. If the person is your enemy, I'm sure there are no love feelings between the two of you. But you can love that person by giving them the necessary food and beverage they need to refresh their weary or weak body. So the first myth about love that the Bible destroys is that love feelings must precede acts of love. No, no. You can love a person when you don't feel like it. How so? By giving to them those things that they need to survive. Now, even if the relationship in your marriage, no, now we're going to get personal. Even if the relationship in your marriage is such that it has deteriorated to anger and hostility, God commands you to love. If you cannot love your spouse as your lover, as your friend, you are commanded to love your neighbor 
as yourself, and guess who is your closest neighbor? Your spouse. And even if you consider your spouse to somehow be your enemy, even here God commands you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. You can feed him, you can clothe him, you can help him, you can aid him, you can care for him, you can counsel him, you can pray for him, and all of this is loving him or her, as the case may be. I don't think we've caught this principle from the scripture. We bought into the world's definition of love. Well, if you don't have love feelings anymore, I guess the relationship is gone. Bye. Secondly, God can command us to love because if love is giving, then love is the result of work and not because you fell into an uncontrollable way of reacting. Forgetting the other person and what you want to receive from them, love from you will mean that you expend some energy and labor and forethought towards the one that's loved. We hear young people speaking of, oh, I just fell in love. They mean by that that love just came their way rather automatically, certainly apart from any forethought or plan. Love just happens, we are told. A young man enters a crowded room when suddenly across the room his eyes meet with those of a beautiful blonde and whammo! It's love at first sight. Sparks fly. Little chills run up and down his His palms begin to perspire. His face begins to blush. And everyone from that day on tells him, Oh, you're just in love. And he himself thinks, yeah, That must be it. I'm in, I must be in love. For the next several months, he dates this beautiful woman. And year after year, sometime later, they are married. Then he finds out that the woman he married wears a wig. She's really not a blonde at all. She's a brunette. He discovers that his wife prefers shopping to housekeeping, her career over having children, weekend partying with friends instead of staying home with him. Oh, he didn't know all that. Years pass, and both parties in the relationship become more and more disillusioned until the only recourse seems to be divorce. The reason given is this. Well, I mean, all the love has gone out of our marriage. Wrong. Wrong. There was little love or no love in it to start. All the infatuation has gone out of the marriage. Yeah. And the infatuation has to do with 
those fantasies of love that we dream about. The false glamour of love that we've been taught to expect, which usually centers around pleasure and good feelings. So when the pleasure ceases and the good feelings go sour, we speak of love dying. God's word opposes all such notions of love. God does not fall in love with us as his people. He doesn't do that. Rather, he sets his love upon us, which means he chooses to love us in spite of what we are. Well, what are we? (laughs) Nothing beautiful to look at. Nothing beautiful inside. Haters of God. Godliness. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Arrogant, boastful, proud, without an ounce of humility and respect towards Him. That's what we are. The Bible uses terms like enemy, ungodly, unrighteous, lawless, wicked, stiff-necked to describe us. Yet God determined to love us He went to work to do for us all that was necessary to rescue us from self-destruction. We are to love one another like this as well. We are to make the choice of love. And having done that, we are to go to work to do acts of love. You will say, oh, but, 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 Pastor, shouldn't a person feel love for the one they plan to marry? Well, obviously they should. And all I am saying here is that love feelings do not come first. Feelings follow activity. Jesus gave us this principle. Provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief can come near and no moths can destroy. For, here's the reason, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Let me read it again. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Luke 12, 33 and 34. Our Lord is saying that the affections of our heart, the emotional feelings of love, will reside wherever we have a great investment. Our treasure. This is true in the material realm. For example, if you have put a lot of money into your house, chances are you love your house and you would hate to have to sell it and move. The more you fix it up the way you want it, the more you add to it in terms of decor and landscaping and patios and fountains, and furniture, and skylights, etc., etc., 
the more you become attached to it. Well, just so you know, people are like that too. When we begin to build up an investment in someone with time and concern and help and care and kindness and sharing and joys, our feeling for that person grows in proportion to our investment. They become a part of our life. And these acts of goodness and kindness are themselves expressions of love. And if you keep it consistently, the love feelings will follow. Maybe for a while during the building process, we may sense little or no love feelings at all. But as long as we are giving, we are loving. And the day will come when the love feelings will begin to emerge. What this has to do with loving the brethren should be obvious. We're not to wait till we have love feelings for someone before we treat them in a loving way. We begin by going to work, investing ourselves in their lives. The more we give, the more we commit to them, the greater will be the love bond between us and them. Pick that person you have a personality clash with, start doing things for them and with them, go shopping together, go fishing or golfing, or just have them over for dinner, laugh together, share sad stories, cry together if need be, give them a helping hand with a project, counsel them in their sorrow, comfort them when they are discouraged. This is the work of love. And the community of believers is to be characterized by this kind of love. If you want the assurance of remaining in Christ's love, you will have to be loving one another. John's words echo in our ears. If anyone says, I love God. I love God yet hates his brother. He is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must love his brother. 1 John 4, verse 19. Love then for the believer is a command by Christ. And it can be commanded because love is giving, not taking. It can be commanded because it involves work or investment in another person. So let us be about this work of love. And I'm not saying that sometimes you're going to find it is work. 
There's certain people that's just great on you. Well, boy, you want me to love them? They're the direct opposite of everything I like and everything I enjoy. Yeah, it'll be worth it. But it'll be worth it in the end. You're going to have to spend eternity with them, one another. So let us be about the work of love. Our Lord explained to his disciples, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Matthew 13, verse 35. Jesus hit on the one thing the world cannot duplicate. But they know it when they see it. Book of Acts. The Jewish understanding of the Christian was my how they love one another. The world could see it. We need to be about And we can love somebody even when they don't love us. If a person is considered your enemy, <laughs> that enemy is not going to love you. In closing, just reflect on the story of the Samaritan. You know, in the New Testament. Came upon a Jew that had been beaten up, robbed by robbers. And the thought was, and it was practice. The Samaritans have no dealings with the Jews and vice versa. What was the Samaritan? A Samaritan was a Jewish person who married a Gentile. Who tilt, no, no, doing that. You've betrayed the faith. You married somebody outside the faith. And so they were hated. Read the story and you will see. The Good Samaritan showed love towards a hated person. Not from his viewpoint, but from the other person's viewpoint. Possible to learn how to love those that hate us. To love our enemies when they don't reciprocate. Our Father teaches how to love like this. It is, um, it is Spirit, Holy Spirit created. No one can love like this in and of themselves. If a person is our enemy and we know they're our enemy, it's going to be hard to love them. But hard or not, we have the power of the Spirit of God to do it. And it may very well be our love expressed to an avowed enemy that causes that enemy to become our friend.
because they they just won't understand it. How can we love them when we hate them so? Well, indeed, because of the Spirit of God that has changed our heart. Help us to be loving from the standpoint that it's a choice. We can choose to love. And we need that in our society. We need that with our friends. What about our relatives? Boy, I have some doozy relatives. They don't love God. And for that reason, we take a lot of angst, a lot of cruel statements, a lot of blasphemies. charges of being stupid and so on and so on. But we need to love them. Because the devil has them. And they're trapped and don't know. Bless these truths to our hearts in Christ. Amen. Do we have a closing hymn, hon? Okay. Six, two, three. Sixty-seven in in the brown.
Our Lord, how true it is. The love of God is unfathomable. That you should love us who in our sin have opposed you, have hated you, have chosen to be alienated as your enemies, all of those things and more. And yet you loved us and sacrificed for us and sent your Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And we are humbled by that and we are blessed by that. But it is also an example to us that it is possible to love hateful people, to love enemies, to love those who, oh, they just get under our skin. But we need to love them. We are the Bible they read. If they don't see love in us, how will they understand God's love? I pray that you will help us. Give us the grace and the strength and the power to do it for the glory of Jesus, for the advancement of the gospel. In Christ's name, amen. We are dismissed.